be seated. Amen. Take your Bibles. Turn once again to Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2, we'll be looking this morning at verses 18 through 29. As you're turning there, let me remind you that every week, uh, usually Sunday afternoon, sometimes it takes us till Sunday evening, we're posting a prayer guide that goes with the Sunday sermon, helps you throughout the week. Uh, God blesses corporate prayer. As we're all praying the same thing, listening to the same messages, I've told you over and over, what we do on Sunday morning is the beginning of a conversation. This is the beginning of a conversation. So we're starting something here, which we'll continue to talk about throughout the week, Lord willing, and pray through. So please take that guide, pray those things. Let's just pray that what God is doing in this sermon, in these words, would be meaningful to us. So I pray that you would continue to do that. Many of you over this uh, last summer and even in just a few weeks ago were involved in uh, the door-to-door outreach that we did uh, this summer. It was a, a great experience. I don't know if you've ever done that before. Some of you, I know it was your first time, but every time I do this, I experience a lot of joy. Matter of fact, I'm reminded of Luke chapter 10 when it says that Jesus sent out his disciples and when they came back, they were filled with joy because of what happened. And it's the only time in scripture we see that it says that Jesus Filled with the joy of the Holy Spirit, rejoicing in the Holy Spirit when he saw his disciples come back from going out. And I experienced that. I think many of you experienced that. It's just fun to go to people's house and say, listen, we're from Prince Avenue Baptist Church. We love you. Anything we can do for you, we want to know. But I have to tell you, in the midst of all the joy, I had one thing that just kind of irritated me. I mean, I'm just going to be honest with you this morning. I don't want to hold this in. It was just a little frustrating, and I... It happened to me the first time I went out, and the second time, I would say almost every time I went out. As a matter of fact, Ryan Wingo and I went out two weeks ago, and it happened to us two doors in a row. It went something like this. We're from Prince Avenue Baptist Church, and they'll say, well, where's that? And I'll say, well, right there off of Highway 70. They say, I thought that was just a school. Now, I love our school. Praise God, I got four kids in the school, thrilled they know there's a school there. But they had no idea there was a church there. This happened to us over and over and over again. Literally, two weeks ago, two doors, there's the, I passed that every day. I, I didn't know that was a church right there. Now, I got to be honest. We're going to change the sign, okay? We're going to put church super big. We may just take off all the other words and just put church like 60 feet high. I don't know. Uh, but, but you know what I was thinking? Even if the sign is not communicating that there is a church right here, I just, I just think that this community should still know that there's a church right here. I mean, if the only way that people know that there's a church right here is because of our sign, we have missed something significant. Jesus never said, by this, all men will know that you are my disciples, by your signage. That's not, I've never read that, and i got a lot of versions of the Bible, I've never seen that one. You know, I think, though, we, we often tend to depend a little bit more and too much on those type of things. Listen, every person in this community, given the size of our church, should know about Prince Avenue Baptist Church. But they should not know us because they've driven by. They should know us because of us. Because somewhere throughout the week, they have met us. And they have noticed something different about us. They have noticed something distinct about us. That there is a certain aroma coming off from our lives that we are loving and serving people. They should know because of us. The truth is, read from the very beginning of the Old Testament all the way through the end of the New Testament, you will find that God's plan has always been quite simple. His plan is that by his grace, he would save a people. 
and he would make them his own possession. He would pour himself into them. He would bless them, and they would look unlike any other people, any other nation. And it was through his people and their distinct lifestyle that he would then make himself known. That has always been and still is the plan of God. Listen to two examples. Deuteronomy 7 says this. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all those who are on the face of the earth. I could give you 30 verses like that from the Old Testament. Just so you don't think it's simply an Old Testament thing, 1 Peter takes all of the language from the Old Testament and applies it again saying this, you are, New Testament believer, a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous Now, you might have noticed there is one word referring to God's people mentioned in both of those texts. One word that should be the number one distinct quality of all of the people of God. It is the word holy. Holy. That they are in some ways been set apart by God for his purpose. It is on these people that God will put his spirit. It is these people who are living such a pure lifestyle that they are conspicuously, noticeably different from those around them. Now that seems to be the one thing that the church at Thyatira had forgotten. It was a good church. We were told in verse 19 that I know your works, your love, your faith, your servant, your patient endurance. They're loving well. They're serving well. They're working. They're enduring patiently. They have great faith. And the end of verse 19 says this, and that your latter works exceed the first. In other words, not only are they loving and filled with faith and serving and enduring, but they're increasing, noticeably increasing in all of those areas. They love more this year than they did last year. They're serving more this year than last year. They have more faith this year than last year. That's a remarkable thing to say about a church. But there is one thing that they had forgotten. In the midst of all of the good things they were doing, they had forgotten about the matter of holiness. They had forgotten about the matter of moral purity. There was one problem with this church. They were tolerating sin. And the lesson that we begin to learn from the church of Thyatira and the lesson the Lord wants to teach us is this. The sin that we don't deal with can undermine all the good that we do. Listen to that. The sin that we do not deal with could undermine all of the good that we do. This is true in the church. This is true in you individually and in your family. It could be the one hidden sin that no one else knows that we're not dealing with, that we're simply tolerating, that is actually undermining everything else God wants to do. I've said from the very beginning that the church is to be ablaze with the glory of Christ. That's why you have the vision of Christ in Revelation 1. Jesus Christ is ablaze with holiness. And so it is the church existing to manifest him to the world must also be ablaze with holiness. And the question for us this morning is how can we as a church 
knowing that we have been called for this purpose and will be effective when we are living in this way. How can we be ablaze with holiness? Let's read it together. Listen as I read, starting in verse 18. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, the words of the Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire, whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you, that you, here's the key word, tolerate the woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, Jesus says, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her into a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her, I will throw into great tribulation, unless they repent of her works, and I will strike her children dead. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. But to the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. And when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my father, Jesus is saying. And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now, can you imagine what it's like as a preacher sitting down and reading this text and thinking, I have to say all this on Sunday morning. That's an interesting text of Scripture, isn't it? And one of the things that I try to do is not only read the words and understand the words, that is certainly significant, what is also significant is try to understand the feel of the text, and it doesn't take many readings to feel the heaviness of this text. This is a church doing a lot of good things, but they are tolerating things that they should never tolerate, and God will not tolerate them. Now I ask myself, what is the issue? And the issue is clearly a lack of holiness and purity. And I ask myself the next question, well, what can we learn from this? How can we as a church be ablaze with holiness, knowing that we have been called by God to be a holy people? I want us to think carefully and humbly this morning about this. How can we be a church, individuals ablaze with holiness? Let me give you a few ways. I'll encourage you to write these down. The first one is this. We must fear the discipline of God. Fear the discipline of God. Now, every one of these letters begins with a vision of Jesus. I've told you this every week. All of those visions go back to chapter 1 and bring something back in. All of those visions are specifically what that church needed at that moment. So even from the introduction to every letter, if you think about that carefully, you can start to begin to see what is it that Jesus wants this church to hear. In this regard, it is clear he needs them to hear that he himself is ablaze with holiness and purity. He says this, the words of the Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. He says, I am the Son of God. He 
referred to himself as the son of man in chapter 1, meaning that he is fully human. He refers to himself as the son of God, meaning he is also fully divine. He is the sovereign Lord. He has ultimate authority over all things. He is the king of kings, the Lord of lords. He is God. He is establishing right here at the beginning his authority. Sometimes he will refer to himself as the son of man so we might understand how he identifies with our humanity. Here he is not saying that. He is saying, I am the son of God. Recognize my authority. And then he says, I have eyes like a flame of fire and feet like burnished bronze, meaning there is nothing hidden from his sight. Every thought Every action, every intention, fully known to the Lord. That everything we may be hiding from something else, is someone else, is fully known to the Lord. Every thought, every intention, every action done in secret, fully known to the Lord. And then he says this, his feet are like burnished bronze, simply giving us the picture that he is a pure and holy God who not only is without sin, but who must punish sin. He cannot tolerate sin. He is ablaze with holiness. The whole reason Jesus had to come and live a sinless life is because we had to be perfect in order to get to heaven. We will never be perfect. So what God does is is his perfect son, Jesus Christ, to die on our behalf that we might be declared holy and righteous before God, acceptable in his sight. Now, we are positionally righteous at the moment we come to Christ, declared holy, able to be received by the Lord. We are not fully practically righteous because the last time I checked, we're all still sinning. That this is still a reality in our lives. He is a just God and he is a holy God, meaning he does judge sin. His holiness shows that he always judges correctly. Jerry Bridges says that the holiness of God is really the perfection of all of his other attributes. I love that. He said, how do we know his love is good love? Because it's holy. It's perfect. Uh, How do we know his mercy is right and pure? Because he's holy. How do we know his justice is always right and his decisions are always right? Because he's holy. Every one of his attributes have as their foundation his holiness that every single thing he does, he does right. Now, everything in this passage really points us to Psalm 2. You don't need to turn there, but Psalm 2 is a passage which is telling us about the coming of a Messiah and that all of the nations are laughing and mocking the Lord's anointed and underestimating the significance of the Lord and wondering if he's ever going to do anything. And one day there will be a Messiah who will come back and he will render judgment and he will rescue all of his people who have submitted to his authority, and he will destroy all of those who have been rebellious. It is a weighty and a heavy psalm. And almost everything mentioned in Revelation 2 here is pointing us back to Psalm 2. And as I read this text over and over, I feel the weight. I feel Jesus speaking to the church, saying what we don't often hear said. Yes, if you are a believer, your sins are forgiven. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ, but your sins on this earth still have consequences. I feel the weight of that in this text. 
And Jesus wants the church in Thyatira to feel that weight. He wants us to feel that weight this morning, that we do not tolerate or ignore our hidden sin, not only because God sees it, but because he will bring discipline for it. Now, we, we have to distinguish between condemnation and discipline. We have no condemnation, Romans 8.1. We are right in the eyes of God, and yet we are still sinning and choosing to deliberately sin. And we must know that God, as a perfect heavenly Father who loves us and wants to reveal to us that we are a part of his family, will, in fact, discipline us for our sins. I mean, look at what he says to the church. He says, I gave her time, verse 21, to repent. She refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her into a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her, I will throw into great tribulation. And that's not simply a reference to the sexual immorality. It's those who are jumping in with her seduction and jumping in with her manipulation and jumping in with her power grab. We'll talk about that in a minute. Those who are going along with her. I will throw her into great tribulation unless they repent of her works, and I will strike her children dead. Listen to this. I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each according to your works. It reminds us of 2 Corinthians 5, which says all of us will stand before the judgment seat of Christ and give an account before the deeds we have done in the body, whether good or bad. I don't know why it is that we have gotten this idea that God as a loving Heavenly Father will never hold us accountable on earth for any of our sins. The Scripture is clear, Hebrews 4.13, no creature is hidden from His sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of Him who gives an account. Hebrews 12.5 says, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord. Just think about my relationship with my children. It is my God-given responsibility, which I have no right to, to not fulfill, to discipline my children for their good. And one of the ways they know that they're my children is because I discipline them. I'm not in the habit of disciplining other people's children. I can't say that I've never rebuked someone else's child, okay? But I am not in the normal habit of disciplining someone else's children. This is just not what you do. But I would be a terrible father if I did not hold my children accountable to the things that we have asked him to do because then I would be teaching them that there is no accountability for sin. So as the one that exists to help them understand the character and the nature of God, I love them unconditionally and when they sin, I do not remove them from a family and make them go live somewhere else, else, but I do hold them accountable and bring discipline as evidence that I am their father and I love them. Listen, this is very clearly saying to people in the church, listen, if you are walking in sexual immorality, if you are walking away from the faith, if you have hidden sin that no one knows but you, listen, the Lord will bring discipline. He specifically mentions here the discipline of sickness. Now we know, Jesus teaches us this multiple times, that all sickness is not a direct response to your sin. Now all sickness exists because we live in a sinful, broken world. But if you get sick, it doesn't mean it's because you specifically sinned. But we also know from 1 Corinthians 11 and James chapter 5 that there are many in the church who are sick because of their hidden sin. This is an absolute fact. And so it is, he's saying to the church right now, listen, if you are hiding sin, if you are walking in unrepentant sin, know this, that the Lord will discipline you for your good 
as evidence that you are his child, and he will not simply ignore this, but you should, in fact, fear the discipline of the Lord, that 1 Corinthians 11 says there are those who have taken the Lord's Supper while walking in unrepentant sin, and as a result, are sick, physically sick, because they've tolerated sin. Great Puritan John Owen says this, be killing sin or it will be killing you. He says it to a believer. The fact is, is that sin is undermining all of the good things that God wants us to do and all of us will sin. We will sin until the day we die, but we cannot simply continue to tolerate hidden sin. We must wage war on it. We must fear the discipline of the Lord and we must do everything we can to deal with the sin in our life and in our church. Fear the discipline of God. The second thing is this. We must not only fear the discipline of God, we must practice church discipline. Isn't this a fun sermon this morning? I mentioned this last week. I have to bring it up again because the thing that Pergamum was struggling with is the exact same the church at Thyatira was struggling with. It's a little bit different, but it's very closely related in this way. There was sin in the church that was known and God is holding the entire church guilty for their refusal to deal with it. It's not just those who are sinning that are guilty. The entire church is guilty. I have this against you that you tolerate the woman Jezebel, he says in verse 20. Now listen, I, 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 Jezebel is, is not this woman's real name. No, no parent. There are some cruel parents out there. No parent would be that cruel. That's literally like dropping your child off at preschool and saying, this is my child, Hitler. Like everyone in the church knew who Jezebel was. Uh, you can read about her in 1 Kings, starting about 15, 16, mostly all the way till the end. She was the wife of King Ahab, the king of Israel. He married a daughter of a foreign king, which was what he should not have done. As the result, she bring her worship of Baal into Israel, and she used her power and her authority to spread the worship of Baal throughout the people of Israel. So King Ahab did exactly what he was called not to do, which was to make an, a marriage alliance with the daughter of another king from another nation, but he did, and she brought all of her junk with her. And the whole story is the way in which she used her power and her authority in order to spread the worship of Baal. You say, what is that kind of spirit of Jezebel? Well, it's marked by a few things. It's always manipulative. It's manipulative. It's passive aggressive. It, it uses authority and manipulation. It is a controlling spirit. It tries to control people through different means. It is power hungry, and it always leads people astray. Listen, these, church, these letters are written to us today. This is still present in the church today. It is not simply the presence of sexual immorality, although that is included and that's where it led in this case. But it is more than that. It is a manipulative, controlling, power-hungry spirit that leads people away from purity and unity in the church. It was so bad in Jezebel that Elijah, who slaughtered 450 prophets of Baal and just had the most amazing moment almost in the entire Old Testament where you just look at him and say, if I have 100 sons, they should all be named Elijah because that man is a stud. It is in the next day when Jezebel comes and says, I'm gonna kill you before the end of the day. And the great prophet Elijah runs, hides under a tree and prays that he will die because he's terrified of Jezebel. 
So he, he's not saying there's a woman specifically named Jezebel. What he's saying is this spirit of Jezebel is in your church, that there is manipulation, there is controlling spirit, there is somebody that is power hungry. And the problem is not simply that it exists. This will always exist in the church. The problem is this, you're tolerating it. You're just not doing anything about it. It says that she was calling herself a prophetess. She was using her authority. She was acting as if she knew something that other people didn't know. She was trying to teach deep things of the Lord. It is what is referred to later as the deep things of Satan. She wouldn't have said that, but she was pulling people in to her ways. The result was much like Pergamum, like I said. The result was that the entire church is guilty, not because the entire church is engaged in the sin. We know that uh, from verses 25 and 26, but it's because they simply watched it happen. I was thinking about this text. I spent a lot of time just, med- just really just thinking, meditating on this text this week and just asking the Lord to help me to see what it has to do with us. And all of a sudden, I, I had this thought that the truth is the church always silently supports everything it openly tolerates. The church silently supports everything it openly tolerates. Whatever we openly tolerate, we're actually supporting. Now, we wouldn't openly support it. We just don't deal with it. And by not dealing with it, we're really putting our stamp of approval on it. And the reason there is no fear of the discipline of the Lord, point one, in the church is because there is no discipline in the church. This is absolutely true. The reason so many Christians feel like they can just sin with absolute license and do whatever and say whatever and control and manipulate and practice sexual immorality because they know the people around them probably aren't going to do anything about it. So Jesus, in his kindness and grace, has put together in Matthew 18, we talked about this last week, a system in which we interact with each other. In the awareness that sin harms us and all of us are going to have blind spots and all of us need people speaking into our lives, what Jesus says, and listen carefully to me, is that the church needs to have a culture in which members, not just leadership, members are watching out for each other. And when they see a member walking in sin or acting in a way that is not right, you know what they do? In a spirit of gentle humility, they approach that one and say, brother, sister, I love you. I'm just concerned about the direction that you're going. And that, listen, is church discipline. Church discipline is not kicking someone out of the church. Church discipline is the moment in which we see someone walking in sin and out of gentleness and love, we just say, brother, sister, I beg you for your sake and the church's sake, be humble and come to Jesus Christ. Listen, I need that. You need that. That's why God gave us a church. And our failure to do that makes us guilty of tolerating unholiness within the church. It is the responsibility of every member. It is really, according to Matthew 18, only the responsibility of the leadership at the end of the process when the members, having gone individually and with three or four, cannot get a resolution, so then they bring it to the pastors. We're the last line of defense, and then it goes to the congregation. Listen, this is not a matter of just getting people out of the church. This is a matter of creating a culture where I love you enough to speak the truth to you. You love me enough to speak the truth to me, and we receive it by God's grace. Imagine how many people would have been saved for long-term sin, if someone would have just stopped them at the beginning and instead of talking about them, talk to them and say, I'm just really worried about the direction you're going. Imagine. We fear the discipline of the Lord. We practice church discipline. Let me give you the third one. 
The third one is this, we repent of hidden sin. We repent of hidden sin. Listen, I know this is a full day. We had three baptisms and I gave a bunch of announcements. I know we may go a few minutes late today, but I need you to hang in for a few more minutes, all right? We're getting towards the end, but we must repent of hidden sin. Listen to this. What amazed me as well about this text is not the awareness that God disciplines sin, even in the life of a believer, not even the reminder that we must be about creating a culture where we can speak truth to one another, but how much this passage oozes, listen to me carefully, I would feel bad if someone listened to the first part of this series and didn't this sermon and not the second part. This passage oozes with grace. There's so much grace. Look, look at this. I mean, Jezebel is the worst of the worst. Like, the only thing worse than calling out this woman by name is calling her Jezebel. I mean, that's horrific. I mean, this is like the worst of the worst. And, and look at what it says. I have this against you that you tolerated the woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophet, is teaching and seducing my servants to practical sexual morality, to eat food sacrificed to idols. Verse 21, I gave her time to repent. God gave her time, pleaded with her to repent. But she refuses to repent. And there's another opportunity in this letter. Here she is refusing, refusing, refusing to repent. Yet here is another opportunity right here to come clean, to receive grace, to get forgiveness, to walk forward in holiness and purity. There is so much grace. It says, I gave her time, but she refused to repent of her sexual immorality. And even all throughout this, it is another reminder that God is giving us time. God is gracious. Listen, if you're here this morning, God has given you time. There could be a hidden sin. And by the way, we learned from the end of the text, the time runs out eventually. But could it be that there is some hidden sin in your life that you're deeply convicted of? Could it be that there's someone you know that is headed in a path that is wrong? And could it be that this morning, the best thing for you to do is to recognize that God, in his infinite, unbelievable, undeserved grace, is giving you an opportunity this morning to come clean and get restored. That there is sufficient grace for you in Jesus Christ. The Puritan Richard Sibb says this, there is more mercy in Christ than there is sin in you. So what do you do? You, you repent. You acknowledge your sin, you turn from it. And here, maybe the most misunderstood thing that we have in understanding of the gospel is this idea that repentance is a one-time event. We have an initial moment of repentance, we acknowledge our sin, we trust Jesus Christ, we turn from our sin because we believe Jesus is better. And that is the beginning of a lifestyle of day after day after day, 1 John 1, 9, confessing our sins, receiving forgiveness, and turning from it. We live a lifestyle of repentance every day. We should be acknowledging, Lord, what I did was wrong. I'm sorry, I confess that to you. I turn from that now and I begin to follow you again. We live in a lifestyle of repentance. And there is for you this morning the promise of grace, the promise of forgiveness, the promise of help, the promise of hope. Listen, as long as you humble yourself. Man, there is so much grace in the Lord. You know, I have to believe that if God gave Jezebel another opportunity, he's going to give you one. So this morning, I plead with you in God's grace, come clean, get right. Receive the forgiveness that is found, the grace that is found in Jesus Christ. It is sufficient to cover your sin. The last thing is this, and we'll be done. We fear the discipline of the Lord. We practice church discipline. We repent of hidden sin. The last thing is this, we hold fast until he comes. Verses 24 
chapter 29, he says this, but to the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold this teaching, not everyone was guilty in acknowledging this. They were guilty in tolerating this. Who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan. To you, I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. You're doing well. So I'm not gonna put anything else on you, but here it is. Only, here's the one thing I still have to say to you. Hold fast what you have until I come. Exactly what we've seen in other letters. The one thing I say to you is this. Keep going. Remain faithful. Walk in purity. Don't give up. Don't give in. Keep standing strong. Keep striving together for the gospel. And he says in the most incredible promises, to those who hold fast, look at verse 27, the one who conquers, who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. He will rule them with a rod of iron as with earthen pots are broken in pieces. Even as I myself have received authority from my father, and I will give him the morning star. Now listen, someone, two people told me this week how much they appreciated me saying last week, I don't understand everything at the end of the text. They appreciated that. Do you, I can just say it every week if you want me to. I don't fully understand this. All I know is this. It is clear from uh, Psalm 2, it is clear from Ephesians 1 and 2, that in some way, those who are united with Jesus Christ will one day rule and reign with him. That we too with him will have authority over the nations. That is very clear all throughout scripture. That we will be a part of his kingdom and ruling and reigning over the nations. That we will receive, which is a picture of Christ, the morning star. That Christ, who is the light, will be received by us. We will be with him, united with him. His victory is our victory. What he's saying is this. Listen, believers, walk in holiness now. Repent of sin. Deal with sin. Sin. Stay faithful. And there is great reward. Life is hard. And this struggle with sin is so hard. And I don't know of anything more difficult than confessing hidden sin. But God is gracious. The church, listen, the church is forgiving and gracious. And there is hope and help. So this morning I say to you, as we close, if your view of grace makes you casual with sin, then you have misunderstood grace. God is gracious, but it is the awareness of God's grace that causes me to want to walk in holiness, not to abuse the grace of God, but to understand the cost that has been paid in order for me to receive forgiveness of my sins. Do not tolerate sin. Hate it. Wage war on it. Start this morning. Repent. Turn. Why? so that we may be a church ablaze with holiness, so that this community does not know us by our sign. They know us by our life. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes this morning.